Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's time for some Bible study! everybody welcome into the channel my name is tim and this is youtube.com slash tim hatch live make sure that you hit that subscribe button make sure you're hitting that like button make sure you hit that notification bell so that you can get notified every time we go live and today we look at the blueprint for the temple solomon's temple is described in detail in first kings chapter six seven and eight in passages that would thoroughly bore the average bible reader but you and i are not the average Bible reader, are we? We are deep divers. So let's get into it. The Kings of Compromise, part seven. Yes, part seven, deep dive Bible study, Kings of Compromise, going through the books of first and second Kings. And we are talking about something that a lot of people probably just flip through very quickly because it describes the details of Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple is one of the most significant, if not the most significant building in the ancient world. The reason why is the most significant is firstly, because God called him to build it, number one. And then number two, God would dwell there, the God of heaven and earth, not Babylon's God, not uh, Mesopotamia's God, but the God of heaven and earth, our God would dwell there. But thirdly, we see Jesus in the temple. Um, if you are a Bible nerd like me, and I am a Bible nerd, high Bible nerds out there, everybody. Um, this is the kind of passage that really just amps you up because you're going to see Jesus in the temple. And we are going to unpack this text and the next, what, I think three chapters worth looking at the design the exterior of the temple, the interior of the temple, and then the consecration of the temple. So let's pray and we'll go through the text. Father, thank you for the chance to hear your word. Speak to us, show us Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Let's go through the text. King Solomon building God's house, the temple, for the first, five, first time in 500 years since they came out of Egypt. Israel will have a permanent facility of worship. It will be um, designed for permanence. It will be described in a way that just suggests permanence. Lots of stone, lots of cedar, lots of gold. He will provide a beautiful, expansive, and strong place for God to dwell among his people. And through this text, we will see not only Solomon's temple, but we will see the wisdom of God in foreshadowing the true temple, Jesus Christ, and then the temple that we are in Christ Jesus, the temple of the Holy Ghost. So for the, for the next three episodes, we're going to look at an outline that goes like this. First, Solomon's uh, temple build in terms of the structure. Number one, that's 1 Kings chapter 6. He's going to describe in detail the inside and the outside. And then in 1 Kings chapter 7, we're going to go through the furnishings, the accoutrements that God has Solomon put into the temple and how they also point to Christ and to the church. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the consecration. That's first Kings chapter eight, where Solomon prays the Holy spirit or the, the cloud fills the temple. And it is a beautiful moment wherein God has solidified or validated that what Solomon does here is really 
about bringing God and man back together again. So when we get to 1 Kings chapter 6, again, this is where people's eyes glaze over, if they haven't already, from 1 Kings chapter 5, when they read through the Bible. But again, we're deep divers. We dive deep so that we can unearth the amazing deep truths of God's Word that point to the simple reality of the whole gospel. Okay, this is why I love reading the Bible. Because the Bible, you go deep to get simple. You'll go deep to get simple. Here it is. We go deep to look at who Christ is, what he's come to do, um, how he has brought us back to God, and how the temple all points to that. And then the simple truth that we arrive at is what? That God and man get to dwell together in the person and through the work of Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at the outline here. It's already up on the screen. The construction of the temple, that's verses 1 to 10, uh, concerning the exteriors, by the way, the exteriors of the temple structure. Then Verse 11 to 13, very important text there where God kind of interjects and speaks straight to Solomon about what he's doing. And there's an important point about those verses, and I can't wait to make that point. But then verses 14 to 36 is the construction of the interior of the temple. And then finally, the chapter sums up in 37 and 38 with a statement about the time that was used to build the, the temple. Okay, so now let's just dive in right here and go to the Bible cam and read the first verse. It says in the fourth, in the 400, sorry, in the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. Okay. So like I said, thrilling stuff here, but what we are given is a roadmap. We are given a picture through numbers of what is going on in this moment. First off, what's the number that we see in the Bible? We see this number 480th year. Now I'm going to put uh, this up on the screen in this format because I want to unpack why does God give us this date? Why does he date it, by the way, according to the time that Israel came out of the land of Egypt? Well, Take a look, see here at the next thing that pops up. You have a 480 year time frame from their deliverance from slavery to the time where they arrive at their destiny. That is peace with God. That is what the temple is all about. That is what Solomon is all about. He is God's man of peace to bring peace between God and man through the temple so that man can dwell with God in peace. And that is really a picture of Jesus. We've talked about this already, but here's some interesting facts about these numbers. The number 480, you get to 480 by multiplying 40 by 12, don't you? 40 by 12 equals 480. And I am a nut for Bible numbers. If you have been on this channel for any amount of time, and I would highly encourage you to do this if you haven't already, is go back and watch the content on the book of Revelation. Because there are so many numbers in the book of Revelation, and it speaks to so many realities, not just in earth, but in heaven. And we're going to deal with that a little bit today, because when we look at the temple of Solomon, we're also getting a preview of coming attractions, not only in the person work of Jesus as the true temple, but the church of Jesus Christ, which is the living temple on the earth today. And then finally, and this is the most beautiful, most glorious temple yet to be realized, the heavenly city that comes down from heaven in the last days. Numbers throughout the Bible mean something. So let's take number 12. Let's take the number 40. The number 12 refers to governance. You have 12 patriarchs in the Old Testament. You have 12 apostles in the New Testament. 12 hours in the first half of the day. 12 hours in the second half of the day. You have the sun coming up in the first half of the day, sun going down in the second half of the day. You have the apex of the day in the middle, 
And you have a picture of the Bible right there, my friends. 12 patriarchs that lead to the apex Christ, who is the light of the world, the light sent down from heaven. And then you have the 12 apostles and the ultimate uh, declination of the world into utter darkness and judgment when Jesus comes again. But there is a governing, spiritual governing authority over those two parts of the day. There are spiritual governance over God's two covenants. The patriarchs of the Old Testament who were the heads of the tribes of Israel, and then you have the apostles of the New Testament who oversaw the church. So the number 12, the number 12, governance. Number 40, what is that number about? That is the number of testing. It's also not just testing because I believe 10 really is the number of testing. That's why we tithe because we test God in the tithe. And uh, there are several passages of scriptures that talk about testing and 10. By the way, the word tithe means one-tenth. So when we test God, we give the tithe one-tenth of our income to the house of the Lord. But anyway, when we get to the number uh, 40 as testing, it's really a testing of examination. By that, I mean when we are being tested to determine what's in us, that, that God is examining what's in our heart, the reality of our lives. Let me give you some interesting facts about 40 in the Bible. The people of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. But, oh, but let me back up. Uh, Moses' life is divided into three 40-year sections. First 40 years in Pharaoh's palace. Second 40 years in the wilderness being tested probably by, by God to see if he will stay faithful and believe still in spite of all those 40 years of wandering, uh, you know, kind of wandering aimlessly. And then 40 years of leading the people of Israel through the, the wilderness. There are 40 years of wilderness wanderings for God's people. There's 40 days of Jesus being examined, you could say, tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Uh, we're going to see in this text here, 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 17, that the holy place of the temple is 40 cubits long. There is a very interesting note about that we will get to it in just a moment. When Jesus comes back from the dead, he stays on the earth for 40 days with the disciples. Remember this? And he tell, teaches them all about the kingdom of God. Uh, Eli, the last uh, judge of Israel before Samuel, was judge of Israel for 40 years. King Saul was king for 40 years. Uh, by the way, David was king for 40 years. Solomon was king for 40 years. They all kind of went up uh, the first 20 years in terms of their righteousness, holiness, and increase, and then the down in their last 20 years. Kind of interesting how they all paralleled that, that structure, that kind of like roller coaster ride of faithfulness before God. Moses sent the spies in the promised land. They returned with a report after 40 days and 40 nights. There's rain that is sent onto the earth for 40 days and 40 nights during the time of Noah. Goliath challenges Israel, it taunts really Israel for 40 days. So when you read the Bible and you see the number 40, by the way, it's usually just an estimate. Let's, let, we don't have to take that like literally 40 years to the day, but the estimate 40 or the number 40 refers to the examination of God. God is examining his people, seeing what's in their heart. Will they stay faithful through 40 years of wandering? Will they trust Jesus for 40 days as he walks among them before he ascends to the Father and then sends the Holy Spirit? King Saul is tested. King David is tested. King Solomon's hearts. They're all tested for 40 years. And the Bible, this is the coolest thing. Did you know that the Bible is written by 40 different authors? So even the Bible itself written by 40 is the number 40 is designated, I believe, to say this is how God examines our life. Our life, my fr our friends, my friends, is examined by the Bible. The scriptures examine us, and that's exactly what we are called to do when we read the scripture. Let it examine us. In fact, that is one of, the, one of my favorite quotes on the Bible is that most people don't reject the, the Bible because... Um, they examine it. They reject the Bible because the Bible examines them. <laughs> we don't want to be examined, right? We don't want somebody to challenge who we are. 
So that is just verse one, 480 years, God's governance and examining over his people coming now to a fruition. And why I bring all that up is to show you that this picture that is provided for us here of 40, 480 years, this picture of 400, I'm sorry, 40 times 12 is that it's pointing to a bigger picture. It's pointing to a bigger picture in that we also come out of slavery, right? Through the cross, that is kind of our Jordan River, our Red Sea crossing, if you will, our baptism, baptized into Christ. Then for this, this same period of where the apostles govern the church age and God examines the church's heart, we eventually arrive in our ultimate destiny, which is our heavenly city, the heavenly temple with God. That is why I went through all of that to show you that these pictures of the Old Testament are really pointing to a larger narrative. That is the narrative of our life with God. Very uh, exciting stuff. Again, this is for Bible nerds, but here's what I mean, what that means for you in your life right now. God is examining your life. He absolutely is. And scripture calls on us to examine ourselves. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are called to examine ourselves. There's another passage of scripture in Paul's writings where he says, examine yourself to see you if you are in the faith. Test yourself. Christians should always be in the process of examining themselves. We do not just I do not believe once saved, always saved. That is it's famously called once, say, uh, once well, I'm sorry, it's famously called one point Calvinism. I do not believe that. I do believe that God elects unto salvation. I believe it is his choice, not ours. I believe he chooses us and he preserves his saints. And I believe all those things are true. But in that process, the work of the Holy Spirit calls us to self-examination. And that means that we are more concerned with examining who we are before God and how our lives are lived before God before we look at others and judge their lives, right? That's what Jesus says in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. Stop looking at the speck in your brother's eyes when there's a log in your own. In other words, be in the business of self-examination. That's what the work of the Holy Spirit does. Because, because there is a game, there's an end game to all of this that we are living in. And the end game is the heavenly city that is coming at the end of the age. Okay, that, we're just one verse in. I told you, this is a Bible nerd chapter. <laughs> so let's get into uh, verse two, shall we? So he says this in verse two, the house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. So there's the dimensions. Very interesting why we get this information, but we'll see in just a moment why. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. And he made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary. And he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad, the middle one six cubits broad, and the third seven cubits broad. For around the outside of the house, he made offsets on the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. Woo, if that text doesn't just scream practical application, I don't know which one does. <laughs> okay, couple of details. And we're gonna we're gonna kind of like go through these quickly. So just bear with me. But first off, what is a cubit? A cubit is take your elbow, put it on the table, and point from your elbow to the tip of your finger pointing straight up. And that is about the length of the ancient cubit. It is about one and a half feet long. That was the measurement they used because they didn't have rulers in the ancient world. I don't know whose arm was used. I know it all adjusts, but there was just an average, an aggregate, I guess, of that length, and they used it as a cubit. That was the ancient world measurement um, device. 
So the dimensions of the temple are also roughly 100 feet by 35 feet and what, about 45 feet tall. Here's the point that I want to make right off the bat. Not the biggest structure. Not something that you would say, whoa, that house is worthy to represent the God of heaven and earth, right? You wouldn't say that because this is about a 2,800 square foot, maybe 3,500 square foot building. A lot of American houses are bigger than this home. Now, yes, comparatively to the homes of the ancient world, it was large, but I don't even think it was even close to the size of the temples in Egypt, in Phoenicia, in the ancient world. And right there, right here in the beginning, we are seeing something that God is pointing to. That when God dwells amongst his people, it's not going to be visually impressive on the outside. Now, I do know this honor to God by saying that because that is exactly how Jesus would come. He is not crowned king at his birth by mankind. He does not arrive in Caesar's palace, the ancient Caesar's palace, not the casino in Vegas. He is not you know, trumpeted before the kings of the, of the world in AD zero and dropped down, you know, with angels' wings from heaven. Mm -mm. He's born in obscurity to a poor virgin, to a, a poor carpenter. Uh, he lives in obscurity for 30 years in Nazareth. He is a working man. He is a carpenter. He is not a politician. He is not a, no a noble person by the estimations of the world. He comes to us humbly. And that is why this building, this structure is humble in its size. It does not, God does not need to overwhelm us to dwell with us. And I love that about our God. He is not here to put you down. He is here to do life with you and build you up. Our God is the humble God. And when you consider all the other gods of this age or every age before us, they trumpeted their own name and glory and uh, weight. They threw their weight around <clears throat> because they needed to produce glory. They needed to impress others. They needed to foist upon others the fact that they were worthy of worship. Well, our Father in heaven does not need to do that. He absolutely does not need to do that. He knows exactly who he is. He is fully sufficient and self-sufficient and self-generating and self-contained and self-glorifying. He needs nothing. That's what Acts chapter 17 makes patently clear. The earth is Lord, the fullness thereof belongs to him. He is not in need of anything. And a God like that is the only God worth serving. Do you know why? Because every other God makes demands on you because he needs you. And that is a small God. A God that needs you is a small God. But our God is a great God that does not need us. Therefore, we can rely on him and come to him, not because it benefits him, but because it benefits us. So this little small building is a picture for us. It's a picture that our God is glorious without having to be uh, domineering to us. I have a picture that I, I pulled off of my Logos Bible software program. This is Solomon's Temple. From the outside, and we are going to talk about uh, the stone altar, the porch, Jacob and Boaz towers there, the molten sea, the lavers and bases. We'll talk about those next time on the deep dive. What I just want you to see is the structure. This is, uh, you know, an artist's rendering. We don't have pictures of it. This is an artist's rendering of the structure of Solomon's Temple. What do you see 
first. When you look at that first, and I tell, and I'll say the answer just because I'm setting you up for this answer. What do you see when you first look at the temple? All you see is stone. The outside of the temple is stone. It is the color of what? Earth it is the cover of the topography of ancient Israel. And this is important because this temple is pointing to a true temple, Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ shows up, he takes upon himself the colors of humanity. Humanity comes from the dust of the earth, right? By the way, interesting little factoid, that is why uh, there are so many colors. We say races. We shouldn't say races. There's one race. It's called the human race, and there are many different colors. There is a spectrum of color to the human race, and all those colors are shades of dirt. You are either very white, and so you are more of a, I don't know, what's the, what's the color of white Marble, stone, I guess, whatever. Uh, or you are very dark, and so you go and get topsoil or garden soil. It's very dark, very black. And you are somewhere in that spectrum because that's what mankind is. From the dust you came to the dust you shall return. Jesus took on our skin, okay? Where was he on that spectrum? Nobody knows. And I am glad nobody knows because that means that no color can claim Christ by their appearance because he is the God of all people. Anyway, what you first are called to see is it is, an, it is a modest, although very structured and detailed house, and it is, on the outside, very plain, like very nonchalant here. And this is all building to something that we're going to get to in just a moment. I am so excited to talk about the next text. Let's take a look at verse 7, because verse 7 really fires me up. Here's what it says. When the house was built, now this is when they're, they're putting it together. It was with stone prepared at the quarry. Now look at this little notation. So that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. My friends, I cannot tell you how cool this text is. <laughs> this is pointing to a couple of realities. Number one, okay, wait, 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 let me further explain what it is and then we'll talk about those realities. So they don't use tools at the job site. And this is not, right? This is not recommended construction policy. <laughs> if you ever walk by a construction site, you can hear the hammers, the jackhammers, you can hear the saws, you can hear the nails being nailed into the, in the, in the buildings, right? At the house of worship for God, there's silence. There's no chiseling and noise-making. Um, now, the Jews, and there's a whole segment of Judaism that gets into a lot of mysticism and how they interpret this text is, the mystic Jews, that is, that there was some magical um, chiseling away of these stones from the quarry so that they just kind of like tap, 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 and the, and the stones fell away from the quarry, perfectly shaped the way they needed to be shaped to put it into the temple. Okay, that's a nice, it sounds nice, it's fun to think about those things, um, it's probably not true. Uh, practically, what it means is this, it means that the stones were cut with precision um, away from the job site because it was that important to make sure that they fit when they got to the job site. And so you think about that. You, we need, and, and, and a lot of modern building projects do this now. They'll, they'll, they'll order rafters or they'll order um, framing you know, structures uh, away from the job site. Then they'll just bring them in. And I see this in my neighborhood, houses going up all the time. And they'll just bring in the, the set of rafters and they'll just put them up one at a time and they'll just nail them into place. And it's really cool to see it all come together so quickly. Well, that's the practical teaching. And that's fine and that's good 
doesn't really do anything for me. It's not like it's going to change my heart or anything. But here's the spiritual reality. The stones that would form the temple are chiseled and shaped apart from each other. And then once they are chiseled and shaped rightly on location, wherever they are, they are brought together and placed together in the structure to become the temple. (laughs) You could probably already get to the conclusion that I'm talking about getting to. You are the temple. You are part of the temple. The church at large is the temple of the living God. And right now, and up until this moment, God has been chiseling you and shaping you and cutting away from you the things that are not necessary for his temple. He is shaping you to fit you into the temple. Oh, my friends, I don't think I could get any more excited about this text than that. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, it says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built. Look, oh, I love how the Bible comes together. You, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is pointing to you, this powerful... <laughs> What would be just a, a skim over verse, verse 7 in 1 Kings 6, is actually pointing to us. It's actually saying this is what God is going to do in the end age, in the grand narrative of the eternal temple that he is building, his church, the body of, the, of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Solomon ordered the, the temple to be built like this because Solomon is pointing to Christ, the true son of David, who orders us to be built like this. You have been quarried. You have been chiseled away from your old life, my friends. You have been chiseled away. And by the way, where does rock come from? It comes from the earth. It comes from the ground. You have been chiseled away from this earth. You have been quarried. You have been cut out of this world. You are no longer of this world. You are of the kingdom of God. And God has started to cut away the things in your life that you don't want. God has started to pull out those habits he doesn't want in your life. God has started to shape you and create in you somebody different than who you were when you were attached to this world. And he does it through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And then that process is completed finally and fully um, in the last day when we join Jesus Christ in the heavenly temple. This is why there is much pain in the Christian life. This is why God is going to pierce some things that you don't want pierced and cut some things in your life that you don't want cut and chisel away some things that you'd like to hold on to because it comes from your your old life. And God's like, nope, that's old. We're going into something new. You are a new creation. You are a living stone. You are being built up as a spiritual house. You, right now, Christian, with all the things that you feel and all the things you're experiencing and all the things that don't feel good, Good news, God is making you into something so that he can fit you into something greater. Now we experience this spiritually, but there is going to come a day when we experience this physically. And I can't wait for that day. I know you can't either. Okay, so verse verse 8 of the text. Let's go on. The entrance for the lowest story was on the south side of the house. And one went up by stairs to the middle story and from the middle story to the third. So he built the house and finished it. And he made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks of cedar he built the structure against the whole house, five cubits high, and it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. Um, so uh, again, we're just dealing with the exterior of the house. And the reason why is because the first thing that we are called to see in the house is the exterior, the shape. Again, 
Christ comes and lives very obscurely for 30 years. Even when he starts his ministry, it takes a long time for people to understand who he is. Every time he performs miracles, he says, this is pointing to something different. I don't walk on water because it's fun. I walk on water because I made it. Uh, I don't still the winds and quiet the sea because I'm scared. I do it because I'm in charge of them. Uh, I don't multiply the bread and loaves because I'm into the food industry. I do that because I am the bread of life. I am your nourishment. So every miracle of Jesus is further exposing them to who he really is. But what he was on the outside was just a common looking man, just like this temple. So we are first introduced to the exterior of the temple because the temple is pointing to the person and work of Jesus Christ and then ultimately to the church. Now let's look at verse 11, another key text in the chapter. Verse 11, now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. So exterior done, and then he hears the word of the Lord. I'm saying this on purpose exterior done, and then he gets a word from God. This is all on purpose. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Anybody see anything right there? There's a conditional statement that God makes. And this is on the heels of the description of the exterior of the temple. In other words, the exterior of the temple is done. We see it. The structure is very organized. It's, you know, quite big compared to the houses of ancient Israel. Um, it should draw attention to us. And this is the first permanent structure that the Israelites have ever had in terms of worship. Before this time, they were just worshiping in a tent. Up until this time, for 400 years, they were just worshiping in a tent. It's just amazing. But now, they're going to be worshiping in a house of stone, a house of cedar. And, and it's got all this exterior... Um, strength to it. But God starts speaking. And God is saying, listen, don't forget that if I'm not there, the building doesn't matter. If I don't dwell with you, who cares how it looks on the outside? And there is a very practical teaching for every church and every pastor and every Christian. If the Holy Spirit doesn't show up in your church, it doesn't matter that you have a church. If Jesus is not glorified in your church. And I mean by that, by, and, I, and by that I mean the gathering of your church, the building of your church, the assembly of your church, and even the structure of your church. If it is not about Jesus, if he is not there, if he is not exalted, and if his law is not followed, there's no point to having that church. Christian, hear me, because there are so many churches out there. They have the exterior visual presentation but they have nothing going on internally. And this is a huge truth for you and for me. God reiterates his purpose in the building of the temple. He speaks and he says, listen, before we go inside, I want to make sure you understand this is about me dwelling with my people. And then look what he says too, because we got to go look, and look, look at this a little bit closer. He says, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and walk in them, I, then I will establish my word with you and with your father David, and I will dwell among the people of Israel. So God says, listen, you have to obey me in order for God's people to experience me. Now, we will know that Solomon will fail this. He doesn't live up to this. But the true son of David, Jesus, absolutely does. And so while the, pro, the, the, the conditional statement to Solomon would, would definitely be failed by Solomon, it is not failed by Christ. He follows God's word completely. He obeys God's rules and commandments totally. And through Jesus, our true Solomon, we now have the dwelling of God with us. This is beautiful and wonderful 
for us. Let's just put this up on the screen just so we are clear on what we're getting. So external details, God speaks, and then you've got to get to the interior details following the 13th verse. So God speaks to say, look, it doesn't matter what the outside looks like. It matters what the inside is, what's happening on the inside of that temple. And when we get into the inside of the temple in this chapter, we're going to see some even cooler things about Jesus and about us. So let's go to verse 14. So Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house on the inside. Now, okay, outside down to inside. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with the boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood, and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built uh, 20 cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from floor to the walls, and he built this within as an inner sanctuary as the most holy place. Verse 17, the house that is, the nave in front of the inner sanctuary was 40 cubits long. What is all this about? Well, there is another thing here that is being stipulated. First off, we see cedar is everywhere. Wood is everywhere. This place must have felt fantastic. This is the cedar of Lebanon from Hiram, last chapter. And then we see 30 feet, 30 cubits were set aside at the rear of the sanctuary for a special room. And that room occupied one third of the total space of the temple. We're going to get to why that's important in just a moment, but just bear with me for a second. Wood is central to the internal structure of the temple. Well, who is Jesus? He is a carpenter. He deals with wood. Uh, he also, also probably was a mason of some sort because in the ancient world, you, if you're a carpenter, you dealt with wood, but mostly with stone. So you see Jesus's picture here represented in the temple and the structures, the wood and the stone pointing to Jesus. That when we get closer, when we come into the temple, we see that there is a a, an attractive, if you will, um, uh, atmosphere in the presence of Jesus. And that's what we have here in verse 17. Now let's go to verse 18 in the text and go on because there's more to see. The cedar, verse 18, within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All, this, all was cedar, no stone was seen. Very important here. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house. Okay, the inner sanctuary in the innermost part of the house. We're talking about the Ark of the, I mean, we're talking about the Holy of Holies. And it was there to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits uh, high. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid it with an altar of cedar. And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold across in front of uh, chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. What am I asking you to see here? Very, very quickly. Let's keep going because I want to get through this content. The first thing that I'm just asking you to see here is that we see that the Holy of Holies was one third of the inner temple, the, the, the temple structure. And all was cedar and there was no stone to be seen. It was overlaid with this beautiful ornate wood. The, or, the wood, like we talked about last week, could be carved, could be decorated, could be, and was fragrant. And the Holy of Holies was a cube. The Holy of Holies was a cube. And this is where it really gets incredible. This is a picture of Eden. It is also a picture of the heavenly city that is to come, to, that is to come a cube. So a cube is what? Six equal sides uh, six equal faces, the equal in height, length, and width. Did you know that the image of a cube in the ancient world was considered the perfect shape because all the sides were equal and there was no roundedness. It was very, very, uh, firm. The structure is firm, right? You put a cube on the table, it doesn't move anywhere. It was also a symbol of truth. So you have perfect truth. 
in the symbolic shape of a cube. That is how the ancients saw the shape of a cube. Then we see that the Holy of Holies is in that shape. God is trying to speak to all people because it came naturally to see that shape as perfect truth. Well, God is saying, this is where you meet per perfect truth, where I am. And, uh, and the ark is there. And in the ark is the testimony, the tablets of testimony and the manna from heaven and the, uh, the uh, rod of Aaron. But what you're going to see in the end of the Bible is another cube. Look at this verse in Revelation chapter 21, verse 16. It says, the city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. 12,000 stadia is about 1,500 miles. So the heavenly city is 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles high. This is all pointing to something. It is pointing to Christ, who is perfect truth, represented in the Holy of Holies, ultimately represented in Eden in the beginning, life with God in perfect peace, that man fell, God exile, exiles them out of the Garden of Eden. He puts seraphim there, a cherubim there guarding the entrance and and then he provides a picture again of eden where man and god will dwell together again in the temple in the holy of holies and then ultimately at the last day when christ comes the heavenly city that will come down where god will dwell with his people is another cube and we're just scratching the surface on the significance of a cube i'm gonna put a picture of a cube here up on the screen for you take a look at it six equal faces four sides all equal in length and what else? Three measurements. That's what a cube is. Let, 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 me, let me walk you through this. Three measurements, four equal sides of those measurements, six faces. Again, what did I say about numbers? Numbers in the Bible mean something. Uh, the three measurements refers to heaven. Whenever you see the number three, it refers to heaven. There are three members of the Trinity. Heaven is represented by number three. Equal size of four, the number four represents earth. By the way, in the book of Revelation, we studied this. When heaven invades earth, you get seven. That's why seven is such an important number in the book of Revelation. Seven is an important number in the Bible as a whole. Seven is the number of completion. By the way, when we get to the end of our week, we enter into time with God on the holy day, Sunday, where we meet with him. Seven days, every seven days, we have time with God. Heaven invades earth. When Jesus told us to pray, he said, pray our father in heaven. Uh, and then he said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, heaven come down when we gather together as the church. So you have three and you have four and then you have six faces. And six, Revelation chapter 13 talks about this, is the number of man. Now, all this is so important. <laughs> it is so cool because number th uh, the number three, heaven invades earth, four and six is the representation. Six faces are the representation. The outward appearance is six, the number of man. Who is the man from heaven who came to earth and united the two, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the man who brings heaven three to earth four. And then you get a cube. This is as cool as it stinking gets in the scriptures. I mean, I just really get, I don't know about you, but I just get amped up when I read this stuff. Now, let me just ask one more question about a cube. And I want you to make a mental picture of a cube if you're just listening to this on your podcast app. What does a cube look like? Put the picture in your mind. Now, what does it look like when the cube unfolds? Have you ever unfolded a cube? Let's say all the edges are cut away from each other and you unfold it. Now the natural order, and I've even seen this in, in scientific diagrams, and I'm gonna put this up on the screen too so you can see it. When you unfold a cube, okay, six sides, lay it down to unfold it, and this is what happens, watch. Hello, what is that? That's a cross. That's a cross, you got th uh, four of the sides going uh, vertically, you got three of the sides 
uh, going um, horizontally, and one of those cube faces is part of both the horizontal and the vertical. This is a beautiful picture. As the scripture says, when we unfold scripture, the scripture says, the unfolding of your word brings light. And who is the light? Jesus is the light. When we unfold scripture, when we, when we enter into the Holy of Holies, we see the light and the light is Christ. Christ is our light. A beautiful picture of the heavenly man who came to earth and laid down. Look at this cube now unfolded, laying down on this plane. Laid down his life for our sins to bring us back to God. This is a truth bomb, my friends. As it says in Colossians chapter 119, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Oh, it all comes together, my friends. The God-man from heaven comes to earth and brings them together and makes peace by his blood. It, it Doesn't scripture just blow you away sometimes? It just blows me away. It's so cool. Okay, and, and by the way, what did I say about the dimensions of that Holy of Holies? Not only that was, it, was it a perfect cube, but it was one-third of the temple. Look at there, this another artist rendering here of the Holy of Holies within the temple. And by the way, uh, well, no, I'm going to pause on that for a second. <laughs> we're going to get to the, uh, we're going to get to the, you know, the, um, the furnishings of the temple next time on the deep dive. But for right now, I just want you to see it. One-third of the temple was the Holy of Holies. Powerful stuff because Jesus is one-third of the Trinity. He is one member of three. And so when we come in to the temple... Okay, we experience the showbread, the altar of incense, and all the things that the Father provides. He brings, he, the Father brings us bread from heaven, and then we come into the temple and experience, uh, Holy of Holies, experience Christ, the person work of Jesus. And then, by the way, later in the story, when Solomon consecrates the temple, he prays, and the scripture says in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10, that the cloud filled the temple. The, the, the cloud filled the temple, and the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, the glory of the Lord filled the house. So you have a picture here of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all at work in Solomon's temple because that is what we are called to experience, God in three persons, the triune work of God in us and for us and through us. The Father feeds us, the Son cleanses us, and the Spirit empowers us. <laughs> oh, it's just powerful stuff right here in 1 Kings chapter 6. Like I said, a chapter that many people would just roll their eyes and just kind of glaze over as they read through it. But when we are deep divers, we get to the heart of the text and it just unfolds and shows us the beauty of Jesus. Let's go back into the text because we're not done. In the inner sanctuary, verse 23, in the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, olive wood, each 10 cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub and five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. It was 10 cubits from the tip to the one wing. Of the, of, of the one wing to the tip of the other. The other cherub also measured 10 cubits. Both cherub had the same measure and the same form. The height of the one cherub was 10 cubits. So it was of that other cherub. He put the cherub in the innermost part of the house and the wings of the cherub were spread out so that a wing uh, of one touched the one wall and a wing of the other touched the other wall. The other wing touched each other. I'm sorry, their other wings touched each other, each other in the middle of the house and he overlaid the cherubim with gold. And uh, we're going to just stop there because what you have here is a picture of Eden. Now, let me just in the Bible cam and bear with me as we turn all the way back to Genesis chapter four, because we're not chapter four, but chapter three. What, we, what you see in Genesis chapter three is the sin, sin comes in, the fall happens. And what does God do at the end of chapter three? Uh, the Lord God said, verse 22, behold, the man has become like one of us 
knowing good and evil. Therefore, let us now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. In other words, no living forever in a state of sin. The worst thing that could have happened for Adam and Eve is they ate this, the tree of, the, uh, of life after having eaten the tree of sin, the knowledge of good and evil. We're, there, we, we, God spared them here because if they had eaten that tree, they would have lived forever in the sinful condition and no one would want that. No one would want that. Then verse 24, he drove the man out of the garden, east of the, out of the, uh, sorry, he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, what you have here in the picture of the temple with the cherubim standing over the Holy of Holies at the back wall there, stretching out their wings and touching like this is you have a picture of the garden of Eden now being guarded in a different place. That is the place where God dwells with his people in the Holy Temple. This is um, incredibly important texts, incredibly important truths that we are seeing here. We only come back to God his way. We only come back to God through the way that he has guarded for us. By the way, who testifies to the birth of Christ? To the shepherds, angels, cherubim, you could say. Angels testified to the, that God has come to earth and the angels stand guard. By the way, what is, who stands guard at the empty grave? Angels. Who rolls away the stone? Angels. <laughs> you have this, you have an angel at the head of Jesus and the, and the feet of Jesus where his body laid when Mary goes back into the tomb. All of this is pointing to the finished work of Jesus Christ, who is our true heavenly temple, our true holy of holies, and makes peace with us and God. Verse 29. Around the walls, I'm sorry, around all the walls of the house, he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. The floor of the house he overlaid with gold in the inner and outer rooms for the entrance uh, to the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorposts were five-sided. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim and palm trees and over open flowers. He overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. What do you see here? What do you see? You see gold, uh, wood everywhere, but decorative wood, palm trees and flowers, and then he has these little open, what does it say? Uh, open flowers probably bird baths, who knows? Um, anyway, we have this picture here of just flourishing in life, palm trees, sun, warmth, um, cedar, the fragrant smell, and then everything covered with gold. Uh, just a constant reminder of who Jesus is here. We're going to get to it in just one moment. Let me get through three or four more verses on the Bible cam, and then we'll make a point. Verse 33, so he also made for the entrance of the nave doorposts of olive wood in the form of a square and two doors of cypress wood. The two leaves of one door were folded and the two leaves of the other door were folding. On them he carved the cherubim and the palm trees and open flowers and he overlaid them with gold evenly applied on the carved work. He built the inner court with three courses of cut stone and one course of cedar beams. So what you see here is you see all the insides of the temple look totally different than the outsides of the temple. Remember we said the outside of the temple, not very impressive, not even that big, but, but, but stone, stone of the earth, right? Get inside the temple and you've got wood overlaid with what? Gold, gold everywhere. So let me put this back up on the screen so you can see it. This is the picture again where the outside is not that impressive and not that, you know, shimmery or glimmery, but you get inside and it's gold everywhere. It's gold on every wall. It's gold on almost every utensil, gold on the angels, gold in the curtains i mean on the doors amazing why this is a beautiful picture it's a beautiful picture of jesus and the church by the way you only truly experience the beauty of christ when you are in christ 
You only truly experience the fullness of Christ when you are fully in Christ. The church to the outsider, and I'm not talking about the building, but the people, looks foolish, looks normal, looks ordinary. But once you come into Christ, the church becomes beautiful. The church becomes royal. The church becomes valuable. The church becomes a picture of worth to you. That's why any Christian who doesn't go to church because he thinks that the church or it doesn't belong to a church or a local church and doesn't believe that he needs to be along to a church has no real heart for God. I'm sorry, it is true. You have a heart changed and driven toward the church, toward the body of Christ when you are in Christ. And if you think that you are a devoted Christian without a home church, without a family to which you belong, you are sorely mistaken. The beauty of Christ is realized through the temple of Christ once we are in the, in, the, in the fellowship. This is all that this chapter is pointing to. We are that temple, the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And once we come in through Jesus Christ, we see the value and the worth of that temple. Let's go to the last couple of verses and then we'll sum things up with the next two segments of the show. Verse 37, in the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv and in the 11th year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts and according to all its specifications, he was what? Seven years in building it. Three plus four equals what? Seven. Technically seven and a half because he went from the second year to the eighth, the second month to the eighth month in the last year, but six and a half years or uh, sorry, seven and a half years, seven years to complete the temple. Because that is what God has come to do, to bring completion to us, to bring us back together with him. Beautiful text. Let's talk about it. All right. The second segment of the show is always talk about it. And we are going to talk about it here. Verse 12 to 13 are our key verses. It says, concerning this house, God says if you were built, that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes, obey my rules, and keep all my commands and walk in them, I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people. Solomon receives a promise that if he obeys, then we, uh, the people of God get to dwell with God, and God will never forsake them. Well, <laughs> here's, the here's the truth. Solomon would fail. Solomon would fail. We are about, I think, five chapters away from Solomon failing. And then... As this uh, series is called The Kings of Compromise, it gets really dark for a long time. But what happens and what we're called to see is we need someone better than Solomon. We need a true Solomon. The failures of the Old Testament saints are pointing to our need for a true Savior, and that Savior is Jesus, and Jesus is our true and better Solomon. As it says in John chapter 2, when he goes into the temple, the Jews said to him, what sign will you do to show us uh, I'm sorry, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, prove yourself to us. And Jesus said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. By the way, that was Herod's temple, not Solomon's temple. And in verse 21, he says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. In other words, Christ is our true temple. Christ is the true temple, that was torn down and was raised back to life so that we might do life with God. And ultimately what that means is that through Christ, we have a perfect king who never fails God and brings us into his presence. This is the beauty of our faith. We have a king that does not fail. We have a king that walked faithfully and covenantally before the father perfectly. And through him, we are made perfect. Through him, we have 
life with God, we have the peace of God and we have the presence of God in our lives. As Jesus said in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Keeping the word of Jesus means you acknowledge that he is Savior and Lord. You acknowledge that you need him. You acknowledge that he is died for you. He was raised to life for you. You are a sinner. You deserve judgment and damnation. He took that for you at the cross, and now through him you have acceptance with God. You are brought into the fellowship of faith. You are now the living temple of the Holy Spirit, and you walk and do life with God. This is the beautiful nature of this teaching. Now let's tap into truth. So what's the ultimate truth that this chapter is pointing us to? Fundamentally, it is this. Only Christ brings us to God. Only Christ brings us to God and then makes us the true temple of God. He is the true temple. He is the true builder. He is the true king. He is the true priest. He is true wisdom. All of these things that you see in Solomon's life in these first six chapters are pointing to Jesus Christ. Now, there is a passage of scripture that unfolds this really wonderfully for us. We are going to go there right now. It is Hebrews chapter 10, talking about um, the temple of Jesus's flesh. This is chapter 10 of Hebrews. The, the heading on my Bible here is Christ's sacrifice once for all. But I want to skip all the way down to verse 19, where it talks about what has happened for us. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a heart, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near this is the ultimate aim of solomon's building the temple this is the ultimate aim because what we see is that we have been given access to the heavenly realms to life with god through the true temple that was torn down and raised back to life jesus christ he is also therefore functioning in a way to bring us things to give us things as this text unfolds, let me take a few moments and I'm going to unpack for you five, five blessings um, that we receive through the temple uh, that Jesus, uh, through, the two, through the true temple that Jesus is for us. Uh, in other words, it's on the screen there. What is, what is our true temple Jesus looking to accomplish in and through us in the new temple that is the body of Christ, the church? Okay, number one, uh, he wants to give us confidence to come to him. That's why it says there in verse 19, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Number two, he wants to give us assurance and faith. When we come to Christ, one of the works of the Holy Spirit is to seal us in Christ and bring us confidence and assurance, knowing that our hearts are cleansed and our hearts are full of this assurance. And then number three, he wants to give us a cleansed heart. That's verse 22 in Hebrews chapter 10. Our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Number four, he wants to give us strength to stand. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. We only stand strong when we stand in Christ. And number five, he wants to give us a community of love and good deeds. That's verse 24. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds and not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. So this is a picture of the 
the ultimate purpose and aim of Jesus, the true temple that creates for God, builds for God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is what you should have if you are in Christ. You should have confidence. You should believe that you have a Father in heaven who is watching over you who will never let you go, who will never, who will never forsake you, who will never leave you. Why? Because the covenant is sealed in Jesus' blood, not yours. It's an assurance of faith. I know I'm saved. Why? Because, not because I'm a good person, but because Christ was perfect for me. He died for me. My faith, keeping his word, is believing in his work, okay, to cleanse me of all my sins and make me right with God, strengthening me on my innermost being so that I do not waver in this. I might have doubts. I might have fears. I might have inconsistencies, but I do not give up. I hold firm to this confession because the Holy Spirit is living in me. And then I have a community, a church family, where I can experience the love and good deeds that are born through the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people who follow God. So building up on all the things that we've talked about so far on what wisdom looks like, and we have talked about this now for several weeks. It is selfless, it is serving, serving it is giving, it is administering, it is uh, discipling, and then lastly, I want to add one more. It is communing. We commune together as one holy temple to the Lord. Why? So that others may live. So that others might see the church, be drawn to it. We look normal on the, in, on the outside, but on the inside, you're going to see the beauty of Christ. On the outside, I'm just a human being just like you, but on the inside, the royal priesthood that God has made me dwells. And it, once you get to know true Christians, you will see the beauty of God's house in his people. Ladies and gentlemen, let me remind you that Jesus said there is something greater than Solomon here right now. And so all the beauty and all the glory of Solomon's temple pales in comparison to the beauty and the glory of the temple of Jesus Christ, the church. Could I sum up some practical tips for you? Make sure that you have yourself a good, healthy, gospel-preaching, Jesus-centered, people-loving church in your life. Uh, I love the fact that I bring this content to you, the Bible teaching and everything like that, but understand that this should be like a B supplement vitamin to your regular attendance at a regular church where people serve one another and love one another and people know you and they can hold you accountable to scripture and truth and somebody can disciple you and you have elders who can pray for you and heal you. Like those things need to be happening. Secondly, um, stop putting yourself down. Stop demeaning the church. You are the church. You are the temple. You are worth everything okay, to God. He has made you worthy. He has made you holy. You might look normally outside, but on the inside, there are glorious royal features about you. So stop walking through life with your head down. Stop walking through life discouraged and disheveled in your mind and walk through life with your head held high and your heart full of faith because you know who you are in Christ Jesus. Those would be my practical um, lessons from this text, admonitions to you as people of God because of the beauty of his work in you and for you. That's the episode, everybody. Can you help me out by supporting the channel? As I ask every single time, we're together, the Cash App, Tim Hatch Live, timhatchlive.com slash support. Any amount, we're gonna give you free digital access to the first chapter of my new book, Ending Emptiness, which is coming out soon. Just sent the final copy to the publisher and then a monthly donor. If you are a dependable, we're gonna give you a free copy of the book, hard copy of the book, and that is very easy for you to do through the Cash App. Uh, or timhatchlive.com slash support. Thanks, guys, for being here next week. Can you believe this? It is Thanksgiving weekend. I can't believe we are already there. Uh, did this seem like summer ended yesterday, and now here we are almost to Thanksgiving? Well, next week, no deep end. Good news, though, there is a deep dive. 
And the reason why we're doing that is because we've had so many deep ends this season, but we haven't had enough deep dives. And let's be honest, the Bible's better. <laughs> so we're going to do the deep end, uh, deep dive, not deep end, next week. But I hope to have that out to you on Tuesday night. So be prepared. Here's how you prepare for that. Get on youtube.com slash Tim Live. Click the notification bell. Click the subscribe button so that when we go live, it automatically comes to your smartphone and says, hello, there's nourishment coming through the teaching of God's word. Log on and watch. Like the channel, like this video, share the channel, share the video, subscribe to the channel, all those things. No deep end, but there is a deep dive. I will see you next Tuesday night. God bless and have a great night. Thank you.